What's up, everybody, and welcome back to the Verzi Effect Podcast Show. My name is Paul Verzi, and today is Monday, November 18th, 2019, and you guys are listening to episode 425. It is a uh, lovely, dark, rainy day. As you guys know, if you've listened to the show, uh, that is my style, that is my speed. Don't get me wrong, I love a little love a little sunshine and some nice days that are definitely warm and comfortable, but oh boy, do I love just a bad weather day. I love a rainy, a little cold, chilly, people are walking outside with that look on their face like, get me out of this. I don't know why, I just like that, there's something about it. Um, and I'm very happy to be here. And I say that with um, with the utmost sincerity because of a scare that I had um, yesterday, uh, which I will definitely talk to you guys about. Um, but first, I have to thank everybody um, who came out to my shows at the Punchline in Atlanta over the weekend. It was a great time, and um, I'm not going to lie, it was one of the most bizarre weekends I've had as far as everything else other than the stage. Um, but the shows were amazing. I want to thank everybody who um, listens to the podcast that came out there and came up to me and told me they listened to the podcast. Those are my favorite, favorite people. Um, I had such a good time. The hour even grew um, at this um, club this weekend, adding some new jokes. So it was amazing. But I got to tell you, from the moment I landed in uh, Atlanta to the moment I landed in New York, what could go wrong went wrong. It was just a bizarre one of those weeks. I don't know what happened. I landed there and right when I land, I get in an Uber to get to a, a radio show, a podcast that I was going to do, you know, there. And I'm in an hour of traffic, an hour of traffic. I go, I do that. Then I have to get to the hotel. Then I'm in almost another 45 minutes of bumper to bumper gridlock traffic. I did not know Atlanta has that. The way Chicago, Los Angeles, New York. I mean, some of these, this is how you know we're either overpopulated or our roads and highway system sucks is that cities like Pittsburgh are just too much traffic. And I'm not just talking like traffic that like we normally deal with. I'm talking about grabbing your steering wheel, if like pulling your hair out of your head, if you have any. I'm talking about wanting to just abandon your car and start walking just so there is motion and movement in your life because you've been sitting down for so long. I'm talking about screaming out the window, fuck, from the top, you know, just as loud as you can because of traffic. That's what it was. But when you drive as much as me, you get car sick when you're a passenger. Okay, so if I'm in the back seat or if I'm in the passenger seat and I'm looking at a text or even just sitting there trying to look out the window, I'm getting nauseous because I'm, I'm somebody else is doing the driving. And on top of feeling a little nauseous, I'm sitting in traffic. I can't get out of the car. On top of that, I've traveled all day. I'm exhausted. And now I got to go jump on stage uh, and do an hour of stand-up comedy for these people, um, which is, was the easiest part of this. Then I finally get to my hotel. They don't have my name in the thing. I'm going like, is this a trick? Like, is this just like, let's test Paul to get him so mad and see what happens on stage? I swear to God, it felt like that. Um, it was just, guys, like, I don't have your name. I don't have your name. I'm like, 
I'm, I'm with the punchline. He's like, yeah, no, I, know, I just don't have it. Then I had to call the thing. Then they had to give me a confirmation number. Then I finally get up to my room. That was a pain in the ass. Then I get to the club. Uh, apparently, uh, a server went down, so there were issues with tickets on the Thursday night. I mean, I'm just, it was just what could go wrong went wrong. Then I'm on stage having these great times. Then Saturday night was fantastic. Almost sold the place out on the first show. It was amazing. And um, there was a table. And oh yeah, you know I'm going to get into my unacceptable right now. This is uh, it's just another example of just entitled assholes. And what I'm, and you know I am starting to get anti-alcohol. I really am because watching there is a fine line. And listen, I'm guilty of it until I'm in my what mid to late 30s is when I really started to learn, oh, you drink like a fucking gentleman and you don't drink like a, like an asshole. You know, not that I ever had a problem, but you know, it was like, oh, I'll keep the party going and keep going. It's like, no, there's a beautiful line where just getting a nice buzz and feeling good and then saying, okay, now it's time to go home as opposed to like, let's take this thing to another fucking level. You know what I mean? Like, and I was guilty of it, guilty of it, you know. Hanging out, partying, trying to have too good of a time, not realizing the next day is going to suck. But never did it out in public. And there were two tables at the show Saturday. They were dressed to the nines. Well, most of them were. There was a lot of women there. They were in dresses. Their hair was done. Looked very nice. All that stuff. Feature gets off stage. For the people that don't know, the feature is the person opening for you. Okay? The, The feature is... You know, so there's a host that does 10 minutes, then the next act goes up and does like 20 or 25, and then I go up and I do an hour um, when I headline. So shout out to Mike Albanese, uh, very, very funny. He was uh, featuring for me. He lived in that area. He knows that area. Um, took me to an epic place we'll talk about on the show today. By the way, yeah, you guys listening to 425, Verzi Effect. Um, so he gets off stage and he goes, dude, there's a group kind of in the front that's a big problem. I got to tell people, I got to tell people working here um, that they really need to watch the table and talk to them because it's going to be a problem. Anytime you hear that, listen, I've been doing this for years. I've dealt with it for a long time. It's uh, unfortunately, it's a, uh, what do they say, an occupational hazard. It, it just happens sometimes. Um, and the room, it's up to the room to stop it. But as a comedian, you have to have your guard up and you have to be prepared, which I always am. And I'm ready for it. I've been doing this for a long time. So I get on stage and my first joke hits and then my second joke hits hard. And now I start killing the room and I'm like, all right, I got these people and and we're having a good time. And then as I start doing really well, after a giant laugh, would start to go down and you hear this great laughter start to settle and they wait for the next thing. This group of people were like talking about the joke and started, and there was like so many of them, like 15 or 20. So finally I knew it was just going to be a big problem. And I'm like five minutes in and I go, guys, guys, what, what's going on here? Like something's going on here. We got to figure this out. And like other people were really annoyed by these two tables because they paid good money. They're having a good time, but they're also being distracted. And of course, this white woman with blonde hair dressed to the nines goes, wait, but it's my birthday. And I just instantly go, yeah, nobody gives a fuck, really. And the place starts going nuts. And I go, it's a lot of people's birthday today. Okay, so just sit down. So they kind of like were, whoa, whoa. But then 
I go back in. They kind of settle in for a second. All the dudes that are with them are trying to like, you know, they kind of get it. They're looking at me. And you got to do this thing on stage where when you're up there doing your thing and there's people that are a problem, you kind of got to stare at them as you're doing your thing to let them know, you know, I see you. Okay, like imagine if you were at a Broadway play and there's somebody doing a monologue. And as they're doing this very important monologue, uh, you know, during this play, people are whispering and talking and it's distracting. Imagine if while they're whispering and talking and they're trying to still look and pay attention and the person giving the monologue was staring at them. It's going to kind of say, hey, stop talking. I hear a disruption. I see that the disruption is coming from this table, from you people. Just stop it. That's basically, you know, what was going on. So I feel as though, like, the dudes were, were definitely getting it. The dudes were like, you know, I'm looking, and I saw them sitting back, and then these two dudes were whispering and talking to each other, and I just kind of stared at them, and they stopped. So, I'll, you know, a few minutes go by. Things are going great. I get, start getting through the set. People are laughing, and everything's going good. And then, sure enough, I do a joke that gets a big hit, and then they start talking. Yeah, remember you did that? And it turns into their little social thing. So finally, I just go... Finally, I just go, guys, guys, you got to just stop. You got to stop fucking talking. There's other people here and blah, blah. And then they start kind of talking back. And I'm like, listen, guys, other people paid money. They don't want to hear your little, oh, remember that. Just fucking hold it together for a little bit. And then you could go out and drink and do whatever you want. And I said something. And then one woman, not the birthday girl, this woman next to her goes, rude. That's just rude. And then that's when I go, hey, don't play the victim. Okay, don't fucking, that's typical. Don't play the victim. What's rude is I'm up here doing my job trying to make these people laugh and what you're doing is you're interrupting that and these people pay good money and you're being the distraction. So that's fucking rude. So don't play the victim. And the place just goes nuts. And they're just, this woman's mortified and she's looking at some guy like, should we get up and leave? And I really didn't give a fuck. And to be honest, I didn't care. And, and I want to, normally when this happens, it's shame on the comedy club for not trying to police the room. But I have to give credit to the punchline in Atlanta. As always, they delivered for me and they were great because four times they walked up to this table. And not only did they have a manager walk up four times, they also had somebody standing behind them like lingering going, guys, I'm here, get out. Or what's going on? They tried to. It just was one of those things where it was such a big party and a birthday. So then they finally did settle down. And the funniest thing was this woman... Because I did another 25 minutes, a half hour after I did that whole don't play the victim bullshit. And while I was killing, I actually won like 75% of them back. But this one woman just was staring, waiting to leave. And I remember I did a joke that was undeniably funny. And her girlfriends were laughing. And she kind of was staring. And I wanted to stop the show and say, I fucking see you, asshole, giving me the evil eye. You know that shit was fucking funny. But I didn't want to go there. I just kind of did, you know. But... That's what I was dealing with, you know, and that, that's what I was going through. And then afterwards, she just, I was standing there and the woman that got upset, she just stopped in front of me and just gave me this evil look to make sure she saw it and then walked away. And then they're talking loud in front of me. She's like, that was so fucking stupid. He didn't, and then I guess I left and people were like, she's out there going, that guy was a douche. And they were like, I'm imagining she's talking about you. And you know what? I don't care. Shut the fuck. You're lucky I didn't kick you out because I could have humiliated you more. I could have been like, you know what? 
get up and get out. I don't need you in here. And you know what? I'm sorry to the comedy club if I would have done that. If 15, 20 people get up and leave. But you know what? If 15, 20 people are the cancer and you cut it out and everybody else has a good time. And when I tell you that everybody else in this place, and it was packed out, almost sold out, went wild. People were clapping for me even after the initial clap when I told those people to stop. So that's the unacceptable. Don't play the victim. You're a drunk asshole. Nobody cares that it's your birthday. If it's your birthday and you want people to recognize it, go to a nightclub and have the fucking DJ shout you out, okay? Go somewhere else and have people say, oh, we got a birthday girl here. Go to fucking Applebee's and have them bring out a shitty cupcake or whatever that shitty dessert they bring out is and sing happy birthday if you need to be called out like that. I don't care. You don't stop a comedy show and tell a comedian, especially me, when I'm up there doing my thing. And what sucked is it was such a great night, it was such a packed show, and I gave everything I had on that stage to that show, just like I do every show, and I did the, and I did the show after that. But what sucks is that show was so great and strong, and those people made it have a little lull because of that, and if they weren't there, it would have been insane. Still a great time, and, and then the second show was just phenomenal, great people, um, nothing. And I remember on the second show, they were like, oh, Paul, we got some other people that seem drunk. You may have to deal with it again. And that wasn't the case. They were great. They were ready to go. And it was amazing. And it was packed. It looked great. The room was fantastic. Um, but that's my unacceptable. Somebody playing the victim saying, I'm being rude because I'm calling you out. I said it a million times on this show. And I will say it again, because if I, if this show can make one comedy show better, if you as an audience member can lean over to somebody and tell them to shut the fuck up to make a show better, not just for me, for any comedian or any performer, it's worth it. So, if you don't play the fucking victim, okay, it's unacceptable to say that. I don't care. We don't care if it's your birthday. Do you understand, you stupid, narcissistic fucking assholes? Do you understand it's not about you? It's about everybody enjoying the show because that's what the performer brings. I don't give a fuck that you, you know, put coloring in your blonde hair and you put a dress on. Okay? I really don't. In fact, I'll take it this far. There was another couple leaving. There was this, uh, this woman um, and her, I guess somebody walking and it, I didn't know they were in the party. And I said, thanks for coming. And the woman ignored me and walked by. And then she walked over to the party and I realized she was in the party that I scolded. I mean, listen, I did go hard on them, but I needed to. I said, look, I already got children. I'm not dealing with this shit. I mean, I definitely made some of these people feel silly, but that needs to be done. And she walked by and I was like, oh, wow, I guess she didn't like the show. And then, I, and then she walked over to the women that I went at. And, um, and then, the, then the, the, God, I hope she's listening to this just so she knows that her boyfriend is cool and realizes that they suck. Her boyfriend, her husband walked up and he goes, hey, man, that was really great, man. Really great job you know, sorry. He goes, you know, we were in that party, but you know, he was like, yeah, it was the women, you know. And I was like, I get it, man. I see what happened, but it's unacceptable. And what's even more unacceptable is this bitch had the nerve to stand in front of me after the show that I just gave an hour or whatever it was, right around an hour, sweating up there, you know, going crazy, giving everything I got. She had the nerve to stop and just give me this dirty look and walk away. Like I give a shit I don't give a shit if she flew off a cliff in her car after the show. Does she think I care? And then she was talking loud and I just had a smile on my face and I walked to the green room. I don't care. Oh, God, it feels good. It feels good to just let these people know what it's about and, and what needs to happen at a comedy show. But it is, that's my unacceptable. That's my unacceptable. And you know what else is unacceptable? I know what I, I, I go with a lot of 
you know, women on, on with the heckling because that's the majority of what it is. I hate to say it, ladies, but it is. I would gather, and, and I'll tell you from my experience, and I've heard this from comedians that have been doing it a lot longer than me, the, you know, white women that are drunk are usually the hecklers. That just is what it is. I'm sorry, but women in general. But you know something? I'm going to go with the men too because even though the guys were trying to be good, it's like, how about you lean over to your girl and you say, hey, sweetie, shut the fuck up. Oh, I know why. Because it's her birthday. You want to get laid. You want to do this stuff, but it's ridiculous. It's like, how about you step up a little bit, dude? How about you have some set of balls on you? Have a little bit of balls to go, hey, you know what? We're adults and we're being kind of fucking rude. Are you that weak or are you that low tolerance, lightweight, that two shots and a couple of beers makes you just deal with shit? It's ridiculous. It's it's really ridiculous. You know, so um, that's my unacceptable. But the But I will tell you this, other than this party, The crowds were incredible. The people were supportive. They were supportive on me dealing with the shit. So fantastic. Okay. That is, um, that is my unacceptable for the, um, for the week. Here is what is acceptable. When I go out, you guys know I like cigar lounges. I like to go to, you know, I'm not going to nightclubs. I'm not going to strip clubs. I'm a married dude with kids. Uh, you know, I just worked a bunch of shows. I'm not, all I want to do is have one or two glasses of red wine or, a you know, an old fashioned or bourbon, a scotch and just sit down and have a cigar. So I say to Mike Albanese, you know, I go, Hey man, I'm going to go to a cigar lounge after the second show Friday. And, uh, he goes, Oh, you know, have you, you want to go to the, uh, red phone booth? And I'm thinking, cause Mike's a food guy and he knows like, you know, he's like, they were pitching a show to the Food Network and shit. Like, Mike knows, like, places to go. Um, and I go, well, what is that? He goes, oh, it's a secret speakeasy cigar lounge. But you got to go into this old school red phone booth and you have to have a number. And the number keeps changing. But the only way you could get into this speakeasy is if you have the number. And then, like, a private door opens behind the, the uh, phone booth and then you get in. And they have amazing cocktails. But he underplayed it. That's why I like Mike. He he like downplayed it. He goes, oh yeah, it's a really cool place. So I'm going, dude, that sounds fantastic. So we go to downtown Atlanta. My younger brother, Steven, came with, with us. He came to see me and hang with me for the weekend. Took some pictures of the shows and just wanted to get out of New York for a little while. So I'm like, yeah, come down. So we go downtown and there's an old school, it looked like one that would be like in London, red phone booth. And there's a line of a couple people and you got to have this number. So Mike knows the owner, he calls the number, and then we get into this place, and as soon as we walk in, the owner was like, oh shit, what's up, giving hugs, giving hugs, we get introduced, find out that they have a legendary famous bartender there who's been doing it for like 40 years, guy's name is Bob Rude, guy's been doing it for 40 something years, he's retiring in December, and apparently this guy makes the greatest old fashioned in the fucking world. I am not bullshitting you when I tell you we ordered three old fashions to have this legend make. It took 25 minutes. Now, I'm going to say that again. Not getting the drink. Getting the drink didn't take 25 minutes. Making one, or I should say making three cocktails, which he made at the same time, took 25 minutes. I am, I now granted the place was completely mobbed. You know, everybody's going wild in this place. It's completely mobbed. 
Um, they don't allow paparazzi or anything. That's why there's no windows. Everything's blocked off. And even the door is like this private, like 007 door to get in. And I'm sitting here going, you mean to tell me that I get to have an old fashioned that's made from this legend who's been doing it for 40 something years. Then I could go sit down. Then they had a back room with these low ceilings with a poker table, um, a pool table, all this stuff and, uh, and these two freezers. And it was actually a room back when they were like during prohibition. Like it was insane. They had bottles that you can't get anywhere else in the world here. And I'm not even making that up. They had all of these amazing things. They had like Poppy Van Winkle's like great grandson only gives merchandise to this place to sell. It's like some private underground shit. It was amazing. But so they bring in, they start, all these workers start coming in with these blocks of ice over their shoulder. It was like the fucking movie Frozen. I'm not even joking around. Like, and I'm like, what's going on here? Like, he's like, oh, everything is, everything is like carved. I'm like, what? He was like, you're going to carve the ice to get into my drink? And I'm, I shit you not. They put this block of ice and they just start working it with a pick. And I'm sitting here going, guys, I want a drink. I don't want to fuck. I mean, what is it? I mean, you could have put up a, I mean, you could have made a small shed. If there, if there was enough guys, you could have made a fucking little shed for somebody to sleep in in the amount of time. I'm not even joking around. It was crazy. They're chipping up ice. There's blow torches. Then they do a, they call it a smoked old fashioned. So then he gets these things and, and, and you could do it for three drinks and he'd get a blow torch and he's blow torching it. He's making a fire. And then he puts these little glass, almost looks like ashtrays, but obviously not ashtrays because it's a drink. These glass things over the smoke, like to smoke it. And then after they chop enough ice that's like big enough for you to hold in your hands normally instead of a block, they put it in this big ceramic thing that closes and it turns it into a perfect sphere. So it's like, it's, it's a perfect round ice. Then they take something that engraves the ice with the logo of the bartender. And then in that they put like the whatever, like juice that flows through the logo. It was the sickest thing it took 25 minutes to make the cocktail. He goes, guys, don't go anywhere. I'm making yours now. And it was 25 minutes after that. And I'm going, what, what else is this drink going to do? I mean, what, what? it was nuts. I took a sip of this old fashioned. And as it went down, my chest and back got warm. And I instantly loosened up. And I was like, holy shit. This is one of the best cocktails I've ever had in my life. Then we go into the cigar selection. We get a cigar. And then we're sitting at this poker table. And we're just chilling. And we're just having the best time. It was insane. Um, I heard they're opening one in Nashville. But it was just the best time treated amazing shout out to mike thank you so much for for hooking that up and the owner greg the bartender bob just everybody was just so amazing they were so supportive they knew we were comics and everything but uh red phone booth okay you need to know somebody or know somebody that knows somebody you need the number i got the guy's card so i'm always going to have the number now <laughs> But um, I highly, highly recommend if you are in downtown Atlanta or Nashville, I think Nashville opens in December, um, you have to go and check this out because it literally is you go into a phone booth and then the door opens behind it. One of the coolest places ever. Um, you're going to wait. Part of their, They have a philosophy. They're like, you're not getting drunk in here. They have a list of books. They have a book with a list of like rules. And it's like, look, you know, if you have to sit with a stranger, you're just going to. You're going to be an adult. And like, it says shit like that. Like, listen, you're going to drink like a gentleman in here and you're not getting drunk. If you get, start to feel drunk, just go home, come and see us another time. 
Okay, that's what that, and it was just all these unbelievable, I, I don't know if you know if I took a picture, no, I was going to ask to take a picture of the rules, but I didn't want, um, I didn't want them to be like, oh, we don't want our stuff in here out there, but it was just really, really cool, so, um, so check that out, but now I got to get to the, um, I got to get to, you know what, I'll read your, I'll read if, I'll read one from you guys here, let's see if we got time, I know we're getting, all right, so this is, um, this is from Saren, and Saren says, not saying this is acceptable or unacceptable, but really, a call uh, of, of what? A call of duty cake with a grenade on it, and then he send a picture. Let me see. Uh, and there's, I guess there's a picture of a cake with that. So, <laughs> you know, people go wild with cakes, Saren. You know, people will take it to another level. Is that a real grenade on a cake? Um, thank you for the sub submission. But you know what, guys? I don't know how long it's going to take. I'm going to just tell you this story. Um, you guys know that I've told stories about my flights before. And some people say I love how you um, talk about your flights and all that stuff. So you guys know I'm fascinated with um, fascinated with aviation. Always was. And I learned everything about it. I learned everything about being in an airplane, being in a commercial airplane, the altitude you get, the safety um, percentage of when you're at that altitude, what can happen when you're at that altitude, if an engine goes out at that altitude, all these things. I just learned because it was my fear. And I knew that from my job, I would have to do it because there's only so many times you're going to drive to Denver or Milwaukee, which by the way, I did Chicago too with my brother. Like I was a lunatic and I had to drive everywhere because I was afraid to fly. Now I'm like, whatever, you know, whatever happens is going to happen. Um, but, you know, I know that things can can happen. And the more times you fly, obviously, it increases the number for, you know, other things that happen. It's just different circumstances, right? So, uh, again, just like I said, until I landed and got back here, it was something. So we get on the plane and I see ex-New York Yankee Mark Teixeira is sitting in my He's sitting at the gate and I'm like, oh shit, you know, and I was like, that makes sense. Cause I know he used to, I'm sure he's got people in Atlanta. He works for the MLB network, which I believe they do stuff out there. And also he was a Yankee and he lives in New York. So I'm like, oh, and we're flying back to Westchester. We're flying back to White Plains. Uh, it's a Delta flight, you know, big regular size plane, whatever. And we get on this thing and we take off, smooth takeoff. Things are going good. I'm a little uncomfortable. I had this older woman sitting next to me, and uh, she seemed nice, but she was using my right armrest, okay? Now, here's, I don't know what to do. I'm like, you know, she was probably, I would say, in her 70s, maybe late 60s, older woman, African-American woman, Very seemed very, very nice when she got on the plane, um, but her left elbow was on my fucking, was on my right armrest, okay? Now, as the times, I'm like, I'll deal with this, but I'm uncomfortable, I didn't sleep good, you know, in the hotel the night before. And I'm like, I just wanted to be like, lady, like, I mean, and I'm not going to shove a lady's left elbow off of my right armrest. It's just not who I am. And I'm even not going to go, hey, do you mind? She was elderly. And I figured if that was my grandmother or even mother and somebody, and she did that, I wouldn't want somebody to do that to my mom. So I'm like, I'm just going to be uncomfortable. It's a two hour flight, hour, 50 minutes. So I'm kind of tossing, turning, I'm trying to sleep, I'm trying to sleep. And finally, after trying to play games on my phone and do all this and that, we start to descend and we start to go down. And then here's where things got a little weird. Um, I'm not making this up. What I'm about to tell you is 100% true. It never happened to me before, but it happened. 
he starts going like hard right in the plane, right? He's going hard right and like banking and the plane is tilted. And I'm like, all right, he's getting ready to land. But then right when he straightens out from going hard right, he straightens out for about a minute and then he just starts going hard, hard left, right back where we were. And then right when he goes levels out from going hard left, he goes hard right again. And now we're just going back and forth. And I literally start to see people on the plane looking around, like squinting their eyes and I'm and going like, and listen, a lot of people who are on the plane probably fly a lot, maybe as often as me, maybe more. So looking around and I'm going like, what the, what's, what's he doing? Like, and listen, I'm on enough flights, probably 30 to 40 flights a year where I'm like, this is definitely different and doesn't seem right. But I'm like, whatever. But then we're just staying up there. And then I'm like, are we going up higher? And then we're going up higher. We're supposed to start coming down. And I'm, I'm starting to get like, whatever. But then I'm just like, and I remember Bill Burr telling me one time, he goes, um, what did he say to me? Yeah. He said he had like, you know, four aborted landings. And I thought I had one once when we went back up in the air when we were coming down. But no, no, no. I experienced it for real. So we finally start to go down after what seemed to be a long time. And we're coming in a little fast, I thought. But I'm like, whatever. And guys, right when we're about to hit the runway, like we were literally two feet off the ground. We were right. The, the tire was literally probably two to three feet off the ground. And we're about to hit. And then he speeds up and boom, we shoot back into the sky like a rocket. Now everybody's looking around going, what the fuck is going on? Okay. I'm just getting nervous even talking about it right now because that's, that's what happened. We literally were about to touch down. The tire's about to hit. Everybody was like literally ready to get off the plane. And then boom, we're up like a rocket. So people are looking around. I'm looking around. I look over to see what Mark Deshera is doing, and here's why I looked at him. Not because he's an ex-Yankee and I want to see if he's scared. I looked at him because he's a Major League Baseball player who played for the Angels, played for the Yankees, I believe maybe the Braves too. Or the, oh, I'm sorry, the Texas Rangers. This guy's been on airplanes a ton because there's 182 games in, I mean, there's 162 games in a Major League season, and half that time you're in other cities. So this guy's flown a ton, and I'm looking, and he's kind of looking out the window, and I'm like, is he giving a shit? And I'm like looking around at people and people seem really uneasy. Now everybody's like, what the fuck's going on looking at each other? Three minutes later, the pilot gets on and he goes, all right, guys, uh, here's the deal. We're going to go back around. Um, there were some severe wind shears when we were about to land. Now, apparently wind shears can be very dangerous when you're landing. And, um, you know, somebody, I told somebody and they're like, yeah, that guy could have saved your life in this moment. But that doesn't make me feel good because now I'm like, well, if there was wind shears five minutes ago, what the fuck is going to be different now? We go back up. We're circling around again. We're going all over the sky again, and we're waiting to come in for the second time. And uh, now people are tense. People are starting to it, – it, the plane it has a whole different feel. You're, people are, you, you got the sense just sitting there like, when are we getting off this thing? And fucking when? What's happening? It was really scary. And then now I start to see the same things I saw as we were getting low. And now we're at 100 feet. You know, we start coming down and we're, we're coming in the same way. And I felt like he slowed down a little bit. And I'm not even kidding when I tell you that all of a sudden I'm looking at the runway and we're waiting. And I shit you not, we hit so hard that it felt like a crash. The whole plane just made a noise. Everybody went forward. It sounded really, really loud. And 
people were looking around and the dude across just looked over at me and goes, wow. And everybody, when the plane finally started to slow down, people started clapping, but it was, it was literally like, I've had some hard hit landings before, but this was not that. This was an absolute, like, I think since he had to abort the first time because of the wind shears, I think he realized that he needed to stick it hard or whatever, but it felt like a little bit of a crash. Like it felt, it was, I mean, obviously I'm trying, I don't want to be insensitive to people that were in plane crash, but this was not your normal thing. And one guy, I felt like a dick. I go, listen, I fly a lot. Okay. I was like, I'm on 30 or 40 a year. And then he goes, dude, he goes, I'm on like, he goes, I did like 36 in the last three months. And he goes, and that's a first for me. So now I want to find Mark Teixeira, who was on the Yankees, and see what he thinks because he flies so much. And um, we're in the airport, and I go, hey, man, I'm a big Yankee fan. He goes, oh, cool. I go, how about that landing? And he goes, woof. And then we were on the same escalator, and uh, he, he was talking to another guy, and he goes, yeah, that's a first for me. That was a first for me. And he's like, yeah, it's scary, right? And, like, so, um, yeah. I got the shit scared out of me with, with taking off again. It was basically like taking off again. It was like a fucking touch and go, like we were in a, you know, an F-18 Hornet. Scared the shit out of me. Glad it's over. And, um, yeah, and I'm flying to Houston this week, everybody. <laughs> so uh, that's when you want the good weather. But that was my, that was the scariest flight out of all the flights that I've ever had. That was the scariest flight I've ever had. Um, and it was fine until the end, which... I guess it's better because it's not like they're like, uh, you know, it's like an emergency or anything like that. But uh, holy shit, man, going down and then coming back up. The first thing I thought of when we were touching the ground, about to touch the ground and then shot back up in the sky was that there was a plane in the way, you know. Um, and I think I was on a plane once where, or I heard somebody say one time, they were like, oh, there's a plane in the way, we got to do that again. But um, no, there was no plane in the way. It was just if he would have taken the thing, it would have been bad. So it's just, And then the funny thing is when you walk off, you see the pilot. And sometimes I feel like it's like a comic. If he bombs, he leaves quick. Sometimes the pilots keep the doors closed. This guy stood there and took it. I felt like he was blushing a little bit, but I think he was standing there because he helped us. And I was talking to Burr about it, and Burr was like, Oh, Furzy, fuck, that guy saved your life twice. And I wasn't looking at it like that. So it's scary, man. Like watching people afterwards. So then the woman sitting next to me, uh, Mrs. Um, you know, armrest thief, I say to her, do you fly a lot? And she goes, oh, yeah. And she was shaken up. Like that's the thing when you just look around because it just goes from like, oh, this is routine to, yeah, that's not supposed to, <laughs> that's not supposed to happen when you're coming down at 203 or, three, you know, 250 you know, miles an hour. Um, anyway, so I'm happy to be here. That's what I was trying to say at the um, at the very beginning. Guys, guess what? As we speak, the hamster is out for a third time. Now, I know what you're thinking, Paul, get a new cage. No, he was out of the cage. We put him in the plastic ball. My daughter loves watching him run in the plastic ball. He's running around the house. The dog's running after him. The cats are looking at this thing. He's having a ball. And then all of a sudden, he disappears. And guess what? The cap of the ball is gone so is the hamster, and last night we heard him running around by the heater, so I don't know if we're going to find this thing again, but I will tell you right now, people, don't get your kid a hamster. Don't do it. Seriously, don't do it. 
It doesn't. It, it, it's it's just like high. It's like a high maintenance mouse. It just doesn't make sense. Okay. They bite. They don't want to be there. They're just you know. I mean, they got. I mean, think about it. They got to run on a wheel just so they don't lose their minds. Okay. Otherwise, this thing would have a revolver in its mouth if it wasn't running running on the wheel. Okay, it needs a ball to run in, it needs a wheel to run in, it needs, you know, all kinds of like stuffing in the thing to make its own bed. These things want to work all night and it just does not make sense. Do not, I repeat, do not get, my wife said, she goes, no matter what happens with this thing, we're not getting another one. Now my daughter, after wanting to kill the thing, now she's crying saying, I hope he doesn't get hurt, I hope he's safe. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I don't know if part of me wants... Wants him to not come back or, you know, it's, it's a it's a lose-lose. Because either he comes back and he goes into a cage that's going to make him miserable. Or he doesn't come back and my daughter's upset. I can't win with this fucking hamster. I'm done with it. I'm done with hamsters. You know, then my son says to me, Dad, can you get me a guinea pig? It's like, I got a dog, two cats, I got a hamster, I got fish. We're not getting a guinea pig. Okay? When I get rich, super, super rich... Okay, I mean like $300 million, $500 million rich. Then we'll talk about making the backyard into a giant pool and buying an endangered dolphin, which is part of my plan. Okay, I want to just have a, a dolphin in the backyard. Um, other than that, I think I'm done with this shit for a while. Because I love animals. I love animals, but like to what point is it like, all right, is this animal fucking with our quality of life? You know. It's bad enough I'm saving the cat's life because Lord knows my wife wants to let him out forever. No, she doesn't, but she can't, you know. My wife loves the animal until it pisses on a rug, and then she's like, all right, kill everybody. <laughs> Someone's got to die now. Um, all right, guys, let's get into sports. Speaking of sports, uh, what's the big story? The big I'm so tired of just hearing about the Colin Kaepernick thing, honestly. You know, and I say that with zero... Uh, social or political bias, you know, I get what he did, you know, and, and all that stuff, but like, you know, Stephen A. Smith is going off saying if he really wanted a job, you don't cancel with a half hour left, that means his team knew they were going to do that, which means it goes from 24 NFL teams to eight, I just don't care, I don't care about seeing Colin Kaepernick throw a ball, I, I don't care what NFL teams, what their intention is. Here's the bottom line. If the guy's good enough and he should have a job in the NFL, he should get a job in the NFL. If this is all a PR show, it just stop it. Enough. I'm tired of like ESPN just talking about the same shit all the time and this and then they break it down forever. It's like, yo, you saw the guy throw. If the guy should deserve a job, he should get a job. If somebody deserves a job, they should get a job, regardless of what their political stuff is. That's it. But if the guy's just doing it for more PR stuff and, you know, to be a martyr and not really care and try to make a point and stay relevant, you know, it's that's that sucks too. The whole thing sucks. I'm tired of hearing about it. Okay. That's what I feel about that. What else? What else is going on? I'll tell you what else is going on. I'm starting to get delusional that the Knicks are getting good. That's the thing. They're 3-10, and 10, but they've been in close games. They won a couple recently, and I'm starting to think they're going to turn this thing around. Am I delusional? Of course I am. Are they a good team? No. Do I have unbelievable, crazy, delusional hope that's not real? Yes, and I'm sticking to it. I have a feeling. I got a feeling they, they, they might turn things around. I know that's, that's the craziest thing ever, okay? Um, I'm sticking with my Super Bowl pick, guys. My Super Bowl pick is the Patriots and the Packers. Can't change now. Uh, what else? I haven't watched any movies. 
I uh, I just been watching these um, you know these getting these Nazi uh, what's it called these Nazi guys that are living amongst us these Nazi you know camp soldiers and having them go on trial and I'm watching this the whole time and I I mean I got to tell you these I just I can't stay away from just like trial shows. Please send me if there's a trial I'll watch it. I'll watch a trial from 1974 about a guy that was, you know, <laughs> you know, just mistreating a hamster and I'm they're just like did he do I'll just watch. I don't know what it is about trials. I think when I was a little kid I saw the O.J. Simpson trial. Well, I was actually older then. But remember that William Kennedy Smith trial? I believe, I think it was like a rape trial. Or something. I don't know. But I remember being a little kid home from school and just got into that. Then I got into the, when I was a little kid, I'd be in the car and my dad would tell me about the Clarence Thomas Supreme Court justice trial. And that was a big thing. And that was going on. And like, so I always, anytime there's a trial, I would go to a movie theater and watch a three-hour trial and just watch the prosecutor go back and forth with the defense. So that's what that's my new thing to watch now. And I told you, I, th- I start thinking I'm a good lawyer when I watch those things. I start reading the lawyer and I'm like, no, he's doing it wrong. That guy needs to be fired. Here's what he's, <laughs> here's what he's supposed to ask, okay? Um, so no movies yet, but I will tell you this. I'm going to go... And see, uh, I'm going to definitely take my kids to see Frozen 2. That's something that you have to do. Um, And apparently my wife said we just got Disney Plus. So that's going to be a nice, you know, let's be honest. That's going to, Disney Plus is going to be a nice little babysitter for uh, a snowy or rainy day when you could just go to Disney Plus and put on all those movies. Um... But I want to see, there's a lot of movies I want to see. But I will say this, and I know that I am definitely in the minority, and I know people are going to say, Paul, I think you're wrong, you should do it. I just can't bring myself to go to a theater and um, and see The Joker. And I know that that's weird. But, and you know what ruined it for me? I'm going to tell you what ruined it for me. And I, listen, I'm definitely going to watch it, because I know Joaquin Phoenix is a spectacular, I mean, he's a, he's an amazing actor. And he might get nominated and everything he's been in, he's captivating, he's a great actor and all that stuff. Plus, I loved Heath Ledger as a Joker. It's not because of the Joker, it's not because of it's a, you know, anything like that. But what made me say I'm waiting for this to come to, to on demand or when it comes to streaming, I'm just going to wait it out for a day when I'm home and I could watch a good movie. But seeing him dancing down the stairs in the trailer annoyed me for some reason and I don't know why. It just kind of annoyed me that he was dancing down the stairs and the thing. And it just made me go, you know what? I don't know why I'm waiting this one out. I'm also waiting for Once Upon a Time in uh, Hollywood to come out. But I will go see The Irishman again. Now, I know what you're thinking. That's because you have dirty criminal Italian blood going through your veins. And you know what? You're probably right. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. I just There's just something about a Scorsese movie. There's just something about the the way that he makes a movie that I just can watch and I love and enjoy plus all right fine am I being biased because I'm Italian and it's a mafia thing and it's all this I don't know but listen my name is Verzi and Pesci Pacino and De Niro are in it what do you think I'm going to see okay let's not let's not make this anything you know I'll see any Rocky Balboa movie because it's about an Italian underdog story I'm going to it 
Okay, you could have a movie about a fat Italian butcher working down in the Bronx on Arthur Avenue and and just tell me, yeah, the guy made the best bread in the world and Scorsese made a movie about it. I'm going to see, <laughs> you know, just like Angelo's Deli by Scorsese. I'm like, I'm going to see Angelo's Deli. That's, ex- you know, <laughs> I'm going I'm going to see Angelo's Deli because Angelo makes, you know, nobody thought Angelo can do it. Everybody was coming up with bakeries. You know, Angelo was just some kid. He was watching the bakeries. People like, you're never going to be anything, Angelo. You know, Angelo's father got whacked by a mobster. He, they thought he would go there. And he's like, I'm going to go straight. Okay, I'm going to make the greatest fucking Italian bread that this neighborhood has ever seen. <laughs> Angelo's Deli, a Scorsese film. You know, it'll just be like a fat, you know, a fat old Danny Aiello. Or Danny Aiello plays the best friend, you know, who's kind of becomes a rival. He's making cookies across the street. Angelo is making bread on the other side of the street. Then at the end, they come together. People are crying their eyes out in the theater because Angelo and Danny are playing chess in the park as old men after they already retired and sold their shops to their family members. I mean, I'm going to that movie, guys. I'm Honestly, I'm going to that movie. Um, <laughs> come on. It's, you know, you're going you're gonna to go to see what you know or what, you, what you've heard. By the way, I mean, Italian bread. Can we, can we you know... I mean, bread is where it all starts. Bread is bread is actually the the main. <laughs> you know, the name of this podcast is going to be called Angelo's Deli. I mean, there's no way the name of uh, 425 is not going to be called Angelo's Deli. I mean, I could have called it something about the the you know, <laughs> the airplane, or I could you know about the the phone booth, you know, the uh, cigar shop. But Angelo's Deli, it just must be. It has to be that. But come on, Les Mis. Les Mis is about stealing bread. I mean, it's all about bread. What's pizza? The main component of pizza. You can't have pizza without the bread. I know you get the cheese and the sauce, but that's it. Um, <laughs> yeah, so anyway, I'm going to hold off on some movies and wait until they get there. But watching him dancing down the staircase just, it made me, it changed it. It changed it for me. Um Guys, I'm very, very happy and excited about something, and it's that this new hour is going fantastic and going to all these cities in the south and now going to Texas, which I, I'm going to be this weekend. All right. Now, how many how many uh, Angelo's Delis are over there in Houston? Houston people, let me know where I could get a good Italian sandwich over there. But I'm coming. I'm coming to H-Town. Is that what they call it? Anyway, I'm coming to—I'm sorry. I don't even know why I said that. You know what I loved when you went to the airport in Atlanta and you were going down the escalator? It just said on a huge sign, nobody calls it Hotlanta, which I loved. But I'm going to be in Houston um, this week, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. I'm going to be there from the 21st uh, to the 23rd. One show Thursday, two Friday, two Saturday at the Improv. Um, Check it out. I cannot wait to come down there. And then I'm going to be in Dallas the following week, the day after Thanksgiving, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, December 1st, I'm going to be down there. So check me out there. And then the weekend after that, uh, or two weeks after that, um, I think the first week of December, I'm going to be in San Antonio at the LOL Comedy Club in San Antonio. So I'm about to go on a big run in Texas. Uh, get your tickets. Tickets are going. You could see all the dates and showtimes on paulverzi.com. 
But uh, I'm super excited about that, guys. Send any question, anything you want. Oh, and the new logo. The new <clears throat> the new logo for the Verzi Effect podcast is here. Uh, it is a, it's a, it's a picture of me, but three of me with different colors. And I was on the fence about it. They're doing touch-ups to it, but it's really cool. It's me holding a microphone, and then you see me in red, yellow, and blue. And I was on the fence about it, and then I was like, wait a minute. It's kind of cool because the red is the angry me when I go off on rants on the podcast. And the blue is the calm, happy me who's laughing on the podcast. And then the yellow is kind of like somewhere in between. So it's almost like you got the good, the bad, the ugly, and um, but you'll see it. But everybody who looked at it seemed to like it. So uh, that will be up on the new one. Hope you guys enjoy it. But send any unacceptables, any questions, anything you want in advice, um, send to unacceptables for uh, TVE at Gmail. And um, I'm going to be doing the uh, next live one in December at a comedy club in New York City. And um, yeah, and uh, check out the Patreon this month um, before it switches over. So there you guys have it. Thank you so much. Uh, can't wait to see you guys downstairs, uh, down south Atlanta. Thank you so much for coming out. Houston, you're up next. Hope to see you. Get your tickets now. It's going to be a great time and I'm um, looking forward to it. Uh, take care.